This is God's word. How lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces, has become a slave. She weeps bitterly in the night with tears on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They have become her enemies. Judah has gone into exile because of affliction and hard servitude. She dwells now among the nations but finds no resting place. Her pursuers have all overtaken her in the midst of her distress. The roads to Zion mourn, for none come to the festival. All her gates are desolate, her priests groan, her virgins have been afflicted, and she herself suffers bitterly. Her foes have become the head, her enemies prosper because the Lord has afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children have gone away, captives before the foe. From the daughter of Zion, all her majesty has departed. Her princes have become like deer that find no pasture. They fled without strength before the pursuer. Jerusalem remembers in the days of her affliction and wandering all the precious things that were hers from days of old when her people fell into the hand of the foe and there was none to help her. Her foes gloated over her. They mocked at her downfall. Jerusalem sinned grievously, therefore she became filthy. All who honored her despise her, for they have seen her nakedness. She herself groans and turns her face away. Her uncleanness was in her skirts. She took no thought of her future, therefore her fall is terrible. She has no comforter. O Lord, behold my affliction, for the enemy has triumphed. The enemy has stretched out his hands over all her precious things, for she has seen the nations enter her sanctuary those whom you forbade to enter your congregation. All her people groan as they search for bread. They trade their treasures for food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, and see, for I am despised. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. From on high he sent fire into my bones. He made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned faint all the day long. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a winepress the virgin daughter of Judah. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears. For a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate, for the enemy has prevailed. Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. The Lord has commanded against Jacob that his neighbors should be his foes. Jerusalem has become a filthy thing among them. The Lord is in the right, for I have rebelled against his word. But hear, all you peoples, and see my suffering. My young women and my young men have gone into captivity. I called to my lovers, but they deceived me. My priests and elders perished in the city while they sought food to revive their strength. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns, my heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. In the street the sword bereaves, in the house it is like death. They heard my groaning, yet there is no one to comfort me. All my enemies have heard of my trouble. They are glad that you have done it. You have brought the day you announced. Let them... Now let them be as I am. Let all their evil doing come before you. 
and deal with them as you have dealt with me because of all my transgressions, for my groans are many and my heart is faint. Read that far from God's word. What do we do with suffering? What do we do with loss as Christian people whose Savior is on the throne of heaven? What do we do with laments like this? These sort of laments are the answer to what we do with suffering and loss. How does lamenting help with our suffering? Lamenting leads us back to God. And God gives us hope and reminders of his compassion and of his righteousness. So our main point in the bulletin outline, in our suffering and sorrows, we cope like Christians by turning to God to seek his compassion and righteousness. The book of Lamentations is made up of expressions of sadness that remind us how to cope with sadness like the people of God. We could call it the book of sad poems. Maybe it would be a more accessible word to us than Lamentations. We, we barely know what lament is in modern American culture. Or we could call it the weeping poems of the weeping prophet. That's my preference, the weeping poems of the weeping prophet since it was written by Jeremiah. He lived through the terrible loss of Jerusalem, which we've just studied, chapter 52. Since he wrote about that, it takes us to a special time in history, a time of tremendous loss. The ancient prophets knew how to lament. And because it's in our Bible, God wants us to know how to lament. We need to know how to lament. So we look at three different um, sections together, verses 1 to 11, Lord, look and have compassion. Section 2, 12 to 17, friends, look and have compassion. And third, verses 18 to 22, look, O Lord, in your righteousness. So our test case to start our chapter is look, Lord, and have compassion, and it's one of the worst scenes of tragedy in the history of the world. It's known that Jerusalem's downfall was especially terrible. Uh, Babylon destroyed Jerusalem, and it was now here in the start of our lament compared to a widow, the city compared to a widow. The city was like a woman who lost her husband, lost her children, and lost her freedom when she became a slave. That's what we find as the lament starts. So how would such a woman cope? The answer to that is how would the people of city, the city cope? Verse 1, how lonely sits the city that was full of people. How like a widow has she become, she who was great among the nations, she who was a princess among the provinces has become a slave. So this first verse focuses on a woman who personifies the city. It gives us a lot more accessibility to the pain here to identify with this woman while she faces what we might call a triple whammy, widowhood, childlessness, and slavery. So what does she do? Verse 2, she started by weeping bitterly in the night a perfectly healthy and appropriate response to what she was facing. And the immediate lesson is that God's people can face our pain to begin with by crying. Christians cry. The city of Jerusalem trusted in alliances in foreign nations and they were let down. And one of the most painful experiences of life is to be let down by those we thought were a good place to turn. And this already points us to Jesus, doesn't it? who endured exactly that experience for us. And everyone abandoned him. Jesus was let down by his disciples. He helps us realize that we should be trusting in the Lord and the Lord alone. No human alliances. As we're reminded of this when she says in our chapter about her lovers. This is spiritual adultery. Whenever Jerusalem and God's people trusted in 
foreign military alliances. We ought not to trust in them, especially not those of the world. We ought not to rely on human support at all for the suffering of our souls, but rather rely on God alone. And Once we get that part right, then God reconnects us with his community of people. Verse 3, then next, the widow personifying the city realizes that her own sin and her own sufferings are not the only problems. She widens the lens and she looks around further and more distant to see that the problem is even bigger than the loss of her city. What she lost was not just her own city, but more, she lost her whole nation. Where's the nation of Judah? We read in verse 3, Judah has gone into exile. Then in a poem, things themselves can be spoken of as persons with feelings and such. Uh, We already did this with the city. It's personified as a woman. And now verse 4 goes farther and it takes the roads and the roads themselves are personified. The roads were sad because they used to be full of worshipers traveling to the temple to worship God, but now the roads are empty. In verse 4, the road mourns because, quote, none come to the festival. Uh, The roads in the poem are sadly recalling the good old days before the fall of Jerusalem. The travelers used to arrive from all around the surrounding regions to the great city of Jerusalem in order to join the worship of the great God of Israel. But this time, the travelers came from afar and finally drew near to Jerusalem. And whatever they initially saw instantly alerted them that something was very wrong. Verse 5, the reason for Jerusalem's attack, its defeat, its downfall, and sorrow was apparent, as we've been reminded again and again in our study of Jeremiah. Now we're told in the book of Lamentations, clearly here in verse 5, the Lord has afflicted her for her, the multitude of her transgressions. This word transgression shows that the people were guilty because they're willing to cross a line. They're willing to overstep. The results were many. Verse 5, some become captives before the foe. Verse 6, the majesty of the city have departed. The people are forced to run like a deer. Verse 7, during their suffering, the whole city sadly remembered the former days, uh, the days before the enemies took control and mocked them during their downfall with, quote, none to help her, verse 7. Verse 8, the sad poem returns to the reason for the downfall of the city and states it clearly again. Verse 8, Jerusalem sinned Grievously, and verse 9, compared to a debased and filthy harlot with, quote, no comforter, end quote. Verse 10, as a result of her spiritual adultery, even their precious temple, the place where God forbade even non-priests to ever enter, has now the unthinkable happened to it. The temple was entered by pagans from the nations and would be violated and destroyed by the enemy. Isn't that a picture of a woman being violated as well. In verse 11, the temple lost. Any surviving people were groaning while searching for bread anywhere. And even if they found bread, they must pay dearly for it. And the sad poem's first section now ends with them crying out to God to look and see their sad situation, verse 11. This first section of the poem then has recalled what the city of Jerusalem used to be compared to what the city of Jerusalem has become. And it repeatedly lamented that there was no one to comfort. Listen for that theme as we continue. The book of Lamentations has this rhythm that's all its own. We are already discovering that the poetic phrasing is distinctive. It wakes us up and tunes our ears to the pain of others and to the cause. We get right to the cause. The first word, how, talks about why. It talks about the amount. The word how. 
first phrase, how lonely sits the city or how lonely sits the widow, has already given us eyes to see how painful sin is. Yes, sin is that bad. Yes, pain that widespread, pain that deep can come because God is that holy. How destructive is sin? How holy is God? The lament is already helping us by bringing us back to understand the cause and source of pain. Lament is already helping us because it's bringing us back to the holiness of God. Lament gives us hope there because even now, this holy God who is that holy and always will be that holy still has compassion on us and lament brings us back to a readiness to pray to this God in new ways. The pain caused by our sin and yet offering us compassion from God. What would need to happen for sinners to get compassion from this holy God? The suffering of another instead of the city full of sinners. Watch for that as we move on to our second section, verses 12 to 17. At various points now, what is said about the suffering of Jerusalem could be said about a future suffering of another. Personified as this woman could be personified as another. The poem has already given us this hint. While we keep one eye on Jerusalem during her day of destruction as it's now further described, we keep another eye on the future Jerusalem. The God who is the holy God who sends this destruction is the God who sees our pain. He's also the God who says that a day is coming in this Jerusalem when this sad poem will point to the suffering of another in Jerusalem. You'll hear it as we study these next verses. After his suffering, God will bring about a victory in Jerusalem. And if we keep watching, after that suffering and that future victory, we're trained to look ahead. And we look ahead to yet another Jerusalem. We could call it the new Jerusalem where God will gather us. What would you think if you happened to be historically passing by and saw the suffering of ancient Jerusalem? Fast forward to Jerusalem years later. What would you think if you happened to be passing by and saw the suffering of another just outside of Jerusalem? Think of those things as we go through these verses now. Verse 12, ancient Jerusalem is personified and speaking and she's asking passers-by to look and see the sorrow brought upon her which the Lord had inflicted in his fierce anger. Jerusalem asks you, look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow. And we're asked to keep one eye on the suffering of another. Could you also imagine a scene of the Lord's anger on another? What if he turned and asked the same as Jerusalem? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow. And the poem has us now. What would we say then? The poem has brought us from, nobody knows the troubles I've seen, to... Nobody knows sorrow of the anointed one. We have been moved already from a crushing self-pity and despair, focus on me, to the focus on another, to the focus with the mind's eye of faith, see the Lord upon whom the Lord inflicted his fierce anger. And so we can say that he was asked to take our sin and the resulting sorrow from our sin and made necessary by the holy God. Verse 13, the description of the result of God's wrath. We could read this as the destruction of Jerusalem, of course, but we could also read it a second time as the destruction of another. Verse 14, the sins that destroyed Jerusalem were placed around her neck. It reminds us of Jeremiah earlier having placed something around his neck as an illustration, and then we get the sins placed on another. 
We're primed for that. Verse 15 shows the action of the Lord to cause an army to attack Jerusalem. And again here, another later suffered the same fate to be destroyed by the Lord. Verse 16, more weeping without a comforter. Another later would come to Jerusalem and he would have no comforter, one who would be forsaken by the Lord God. Verse 17, no no one comforts the city. The city became a filthy thing. Later in that same Jerusalem, we would have another who would have no one to comfort and would become a filthy thing, not filthy with his own sin. Quote, he who knew no sin became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For us to have compassion for the suffering of Jesus is to acknowledge how filthy is our own sin. For us to have compassion for the suffering of Jesus is to be amazed at how holy God is. That what he required of Jesus when our sins were placed on Jesus shocks us. And Jesus without a comforter means we will never be without a comforter. And Jesus forsaken means we'll never be forsaken. And we go to our third section. Verse 18 picks up, What if the sad poem of self-pity turns and becomes a sad poem of true repentance? What if I read this psalm in my sorrow? And I start realizing that God is right to send suffering on me for my sin because, quote, I have rebelled, verse 18. What if part of our coping with pain is when we stop blaming Judas for everything? For whose wrongs did Jerusalem suffer? For whose wrongs do I suffer? For whose wrongs did Jesus suffer? Sad poem, Lamentations chapter 1, leads us to the point of saying, it was for mine, Lord. The hymn, Ah, Holy Jesus, puts this so starkly. Who was the guilty? Who brought this upon thee? Alas, my treason, Jesus hath undone thee. T'was I, Lord Jesus. I it was denied thee. I crucified thee. That's what verse 18 is building on. That's what it's saying. Verse 19, what have we done? We've called out to our spiritual lovers, our spiritual adulterers, but the result is always to be deceived and the holy destruction spreads. Verse 20, the poem has definitely taken on this new character, no longer just a sad and weeping poem, but it really does ring like a repentantly sad poem now. The poet is teaching us to ask God to look at the contrition of my stomach churning. And my heart ringing. Listen carefully, verse 20. Look, O Lord, for I am in distress. My stomach churns. My heart is wrung within me because I have been very rebellious. That is the statement of a repentant person who realizes that this destruction is caused, at least in part, by my own rebellion. Verse 20 ends with a sad shock that the consequences of my rebellion have gone much farther than the now contrite poet had ever expected because now, at the end of verse 20, quote, in the street the sword bereaves, in the house it is like death. Never intended it to get that far. Verse 21, again groaning with no comfort, but this time there's gladness in the enemies for God having brought the contrition. Verse 21 ends with the poet asking God for the contrition of the enemies. Now let them be as I am, which is what? Repentant. Let the enemies of God be what I am. It's a prayer for Babylon. It's a prayer for the world. 
Paul stands before King Agrippa, and Agrippa said to Paul, in such a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And what's Paul's response? Would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am. Acts 26, 28. And that's how verse 21 ends. Let them be as I am, which is what? What are you? I am a sinner who deserves the judgment, destruction, and wrath of God, and I have received the gift of his grace through repentance. And I'm coming to him with my sadness in my repentance, looking to him for kindness. And true sadness of true contrition quickly leads to praying for others who are still stuck in their sins. Who are we to pray for Babylon? We are those who are becoming right with God and already equipped to pray for Babylon. Verse 22, our last verse, asking God to deal with the evildoers as God has dealt with us, which is what? With as much severity as it takes to turn us to God. God is not above giving many groans. Faintness of heart, read verse 22 carefully, in order to bring us to repentance. And Paul says the same thing in Romans 2.4. He explains how God's severe actions towards us are actually to be interpreted as kindness by which God intends to, quote, lead you to repentance, Romans 2.4. The Lord is righteous. The Bible tells us he's holy, holy, holy. Nothing will ever change that. Heaven, round the clock, continues to recite that. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. His holiness is unchangeable. What does that mean for sinners? He has done all things well. God has done Jerusalem no wrongs. God has done Jesus no wrongs. God has done you no wrongs. God has done his church no wrongs. God is holy and righteous, loving and merciful, and he's perfect in all of his dealings. And when we get that straight... We're equipped to continue to process our pain and our suffering as there's more chapters to go. That was chapter one. How do you cope with suffering and loss like a Christian? Three application points from our first chapter. Number one, remember that we have a comforter. Five times our chapter has said there's no one to comfort. Verse two, verse nine, verse 16, verse 17, and verse 21. It's a theme, but it's not true about you. You have a comforter. Grief is always intensified when it seems that no one cares. God sent Jesus to take that place for us that our sins deserved, and the result is we have a comforter because we have a God who cares that much. Step one to cope like a Christian is to remember that we have a comforter. Step two, be willing to listen. We start our sad prayers wanting God to listen. Please listen to my prayers. Listen to me. See the pain I'm in. See the suffering I'm in. See the loss I've endured. That's how we start our prayers, and rightfully so. A lot of the Psalms start that way. But by the time you're done with your prayer, and by the time you're done with your lament, and by the time you're done with your psalm, we ought to be willing to listen to God. We ask him to listen to us, and he hears us out, and then we listen to him. Notice how this works in chapter 1. There's 22 verses in this chapter, and it's because there's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And each verse begins with the next letter of the alphabet. And that's not cutesy, that's not elementary, that is fine art. It tells you there's a lot of work that went into this in order to exactly as intended present this to us in a beautiful manner. First verse matches the last verse, the second verse matches the second last verse, and so on down. It's called a chiastic structure. It 
is there for a reason. What's the reason? To point us to the main point. It's like highlighting and underlining and asterisking. Verse 11 is in the center of that chiastic structure to point us to the center of the poem and whatever is in verse 11. So verse 11, the poet's praying, Lord, look and see. I'm hurting here. And chapter 1 says, Lord, look and see is the prayer of the hurting person to cope with your wrong and suffering. You have to be willing to listen, I said, but it starts by you asking God to listen to you, to God to see you. That's your prayer, isn't it? Look, O Lord, and see. You want God to observe. You want God to notice. And the answer is God sees. God notices. Every tear of yours is captured in a bottle. And what's God's reply in verse 12? God repeats the concept you started with, look and see, but it's now asking you to observe his suffering. What? God's suffering? Yeah, here the writer even wants passers-by to look at what happened. See Jerusalem, passers-by, verse 12. And we've been trained to keep an eye on the next, right? See Christ's suffering, he says to passers-by. And that's supposed to change us, to change our grieving, to change our coping, to change our listening. Verse 12, if you, have the, if you have the ears to hear the voice of our Savior, listen to it from Jesus to you. Verse 12, is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there's any sorrow like my sorrow, which was brought upon me, which the Lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger. You want the way through your suffering? You want the way out of your suffering? You want the right Christian way to cope with your suffering? You look at the cross and you listen to what God is saying to you there. What's the lesson? We find comfort in Christ and we stop looking elsewhere for comfort. It's the one place we have it. Let me ask it this way. Who else died for you? Wherever else you're looking, they didn't die for you. Jesus died for you. Start there. Stay there. The death of Jesus is proof that God cares about our suffering and he has something to say. What he has to say is a question. Do you care about my holiness? I care about your suffering. Do you care about my holiness? We know that God has something to say to us when the pleasant merry-go-round of our lives stops. What does that mean? It means when you lose a person or when you lose something else there's a threat to lose something else it's when the fun and the busy moments of life from this to that all stops and the carnival's not working for us anymore and the pleasantness had stopped and we're frozen in shock and tears and silence and that's when god has something to say to you and before he says it he needs to be listening with both ears and an open mind and heart the second application point is be willing to listen Because God has a way of getting our attention by forcing us to take a very long, painful look at the absence of the person or thing we used to have and used to really enjoy having. God shows us through our pain, like the widow who illustrates Jerusalem, our pain, our silence, our motionlessness, how we can hardly do anything or function at that moment right there. There's something wrong with the world. And God wants to say something to you about that. Are you listening for that? Are you ready to listen? Whatever it is that God has to say, 
Famously, C.S. Lewis wrote what's becoming a common quote, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he speaks in our conscience, he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Are you deaf? Are you spiritually deaf? Are you closed off to opening your heart and mind to God? Suffering is an opportunity to learn something that might surprise you. To cope like a Christian is be willing to listen. And third and last one, express our groans to God until we reach a breakthrough of hope. Express our groans to God until we reach a breakthrough of hope. One of the first things God teaches us when we listen is how essential it is to have hope. 1 Peter 1.3, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Christians always have hope. We have a living hope. We need to access that hope and remember that hope and have a breakthrough of that hope into our suffering, into our pain and coping. We cope like Christians by continuing to express our griefs, yes, by listening to God, yes, and by not stopping to work through our grief until we reach that breakthrough point of hoping in God afresh. And sometimes when we get into pain, we get confused. And when we get really, really confused, all we know is that somewhere down deep in the bedrock truth, we're always called to affirm that our only hope in times of suffering is Christ, our risen Lord, right? We know that, that underneath are the everlasting arms of God. How will you know that you have some sort of breakthrough in hope? When you begin expecting good to show up any minute and it starts to recolor the dark sky that you've been seeing. Christian named J.R.R. Tolkien wrote into the Lord of the Rings books the storyline of something he called EU catastrophe. EU catastrophe. No one had ever heard the word before because he made it up. Mr. Tolkien invented the word EU catastrophe, but he didn't invent the reality of it. He just invented this way to describe it. The word is a combination of something bad, a catastrophe, obviously, and something good. The Greek prefix EU, EU. To create the word eucatastrophe, it starts as something, an unexpected evil, a catastrophe that you weren't planning on, but with the added EU at the beginning, it's a reversal from good to bad, from bad to good. So for Tolkien, the eucatastrophe is a crucial part of the Christian mind, the crucial interpretation of our story in this world. What is happening to me and how do I make sense of it all? A crucial part of that is understanding eucatastrophe. The sudden, wonderful turn in the story which pierces you with joy that brings you to tears because it's that glimpse of the hope in Christ alone who is more than able. Lament is like that. Please don't stop lamenting till you reach that breakthrough point, a real hope that colors everything differently. It takes us from the language of catastrophe to the language of eucatastrophe. It helps us to believe that catastrophe can suddenly become a very good thing in the hands of the living God. That one who was crucified unto death, who was our only hope, could rise again and change everything about the future. We learn in lament to vocalize the pain of the moment laced with belief that help is on the way. He has not given up on us. We ought not to give up on him. Lament gives us hope because it gives us permission to use our imagination again, this time for good outcomes. Stop imagining bad outcomes. Start imagining good outcomes. That's how you know you have a breakthrough. We can imagine everything turning around, and we could actually picture God doing something amazing 
in a great big mess. Revelation 21.4, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. As Christians, that's not just future New Jerusalem. That's the now Jerusalem. That's the church of Jesus Christ. That's the life of the Christian now. Christians get both sorrow and victory, both lament and praise because we have a full dose of hope. There's a sanctifying, redemptive value to our suffering with lament. There's grace in lament if we'll push to the point of hope. The grace comes when we see the lament as a bridge from catastrophe, from catastrophe to eucatastrophe, from pain to hope. Cross the bridge. Express your groans to God until we reach a breakthrough of hope again. Let's pray. Father, too often we want to fix things ourselves.